influenza vaccination may not be protecting the elderly as much as we have thought. You're listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Lisa Jackson. Dr. Jackson is Research Professor of Epidemiology and Adjunct Research Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington School of Public Health. She's also Senior Investigator in the Group Health Center for Health Studies in Seattle, Washington. Thank you, Dr. Jackson, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. To begin with, could you describe the new findings recently published on influenza vaccination in Lancet? Well, in that study, my colleague Michael Jackson and I evaluated whether adults with pneumonia appeared to have been more or less likely to have received influenza vaccine than adults without pneumonia. So the question we were attempting to address is whether influenza vaccine appeared to reduce the risk of getting pneumonia among seniors. And our study was quite a bit different from studies that have been conducted in the past to answer this question because we went a couple steps further, I would say. For one thing, we did not rely only on diagnosis codes to document that the seniors had pneumonia. We actually had it validated by radiograph review or by uh, clinical chart review. Second, we actually reviewed the medical records for all our cases of pneumonia and persons without pneumonia in order to determine whether they had medical conditions such as heart disease and lung disease, and if they did, how severe those conditions were, whether they had limitations in ability to walk or bathe themselves or eat, whether they had conditions such as dementia, etc. Because in previous studies, we've identified those factors as being potentially important. And lastly, we used somewhat a novel methodology where we evaluated persons not only during influenza season, which is our main period of interest when we're looking at influenza vaccine, but also before influenza starts. And that may seem sort of counterintuitive, but the purpose of looking at people with pneumonia and those without pneumonia in the period before influenza starts is to identify whether there are differences in the types of people who get vaccination compared to the people who do not get vaccination because those types of differences could create bias and influence the results that we would then find during influenza season. So doing this study differently, were your results any different than what most of our audience have kind of come to feel about influenza vaccination in people over 65? Yes, we found no evidence that influenza vaccination reduced the risk of pneumonia. Either all pneumonia, we included both outpatient cases and hospitalized, or when we restricted to looking at just hospitalized cases, we did not find any effective vaccination and so forth. So our study did not confirm any benefit of influenza vaccination against pneumonia in this population of seniors who were also restricted, by the way, to be persons without immunocompromising conditions, so without serious cancer, without renal failure, and things like that. So it's a population of people that we would expect to be able to benefit from the vaccine if the vaccine did produce a benefit. You mentioned that you study them not only during influenza season, but also at other times when you might not have the same results as far as deaths and hospitalization. What happened in the other seasons? Well, in the period before influenza season, we actually found that persons who'd gotten the influenza vaccine were less likely to get pneumonia than other persons. And so we know that can't really be an effect of the vaccination because the only way the vaccine works is by preventing influenza infection. If there's no influenza around, then the vaccine itself is not doing anything. So what we're seeing there is just a difference in the health status of people who tend to get vaccine as opposed to the people who tend to decline vaccine. 
And, you know, we've seen this kind of you know, healthy user bias or healthy vaccine effect type of bias in other evaluations like uh, hormone replacement therapy in differences between people who take vitamins and those who don't, for example, and so forth. So this type of problem with influenza vaccine analyses is common to other evaluations of preventive interventions and therapeutics in senior populations. So then what we did was when we started out, we had this difference between people that were due to their personal characteristics, their baseline health status. And then we incorporated in our model factors that we identified from the medical record review, like lung disease and severity of lung disease, you know, whether they were on home oxygen, for example, for their lung disease, heart disease and severity, the use of certain medications. And we were able to adjust and control for those differences so that we eliminated the differences between vaccine and unvaccinated persons before influenza season by including those factors in the analytic model. We then applied the same factors to the analytic model during the influenza season, and that's where we found no effect during influenza season. Well, isn't it possible that people with cancer or heart disease go to their doctors more often, take better care of themselves, more likely to get vaccinations, and actually may be, despite their comorbidity, actually be fitter? And instead of looking at things like we're used to, things that appear on a laboratory chart or in an x-ray, we should be looking at people who are frail or fit. We're beginning to look at people with cardiovascular disease and wondering why some of them do so well despite all their laboratory evidence to the opposite, and yet they may be fit. And we should be maybe looking at activities of daily living, ADLs, like you mentioned, as really something that we should be paying more attention to. Yes, exactly. I mean, the whole story is much more complex than I think we have first appreciated. For one thing, seniors are an incredibly heterogeneous group of people. One given 75-year-old can be preparing to climb Mount Rainier, another is bedridden. One person with heart disease, as you said, is doing very well, really keeping up with their health, going to physical therapy. Another is not taking their medications and sort of declining in health. And, you know, it's very difficult to completely account for such nuances in analyses, which is why we feel like looking at this before influenza season is very important, because that's a very objective way of getting a handle on how big a problem we have with these types of differences. The other thing is what we're interested in, in the factors that are creating problems for us, are not only things that are related to the outcome, in this case pneumonia, but also things that are related to the likelihood of getting vaccine. And we've tended to sort of not put as much emphasis on factors that affect whether people get vaccinated, but you have to have both of those things in order for the problem to occur in the study. So the, the factors that you mentioned, you know, inability to ambulate, maybe lack of cognitive function, are clearly related to how likely a person is to become vaccinated. I mean, when you think about it, influenza vaccine is sort of an unusual intervention in that it comes on at sort of an unpredictable time, usually sometime during October, vaccines first available. 90% of vaccine is given out within the next four weeks, just about. And so if you're a senior, you have to be sort of on the ball. You have to know when vaccine is coming out. You have to know where to go to your doctor's office or the drugstore or whatever to get it. And you have to have some motivation to do so. So any factors that both affect your health and your ability to, to seek vaccination for yourself can't interject this bias into our evaluations. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Picker, and today we're talking with Dr. Lisa Jackson, Research Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Washington School of Public Health, and we're discussing whether vaccination for the elderly 
really is doing what we have all anticipated or expected it to do. You brought up earlier about the immune response to vaccination, and we know the elderly don't respond to any kind of vaccination as well as younger age groups. Do you think we're giving the proper dose? There's been some evidence that the dose might have to be four times as great to somebody over 70 as it might be for, say, somebody who's 40. Well, I think that's definitely an area that should be pursued, and I think you're exactly right. I think it's sort of a legacy of the past that we give the same dose to everyone over three years of age when there are you know, known substantial differences in immune response as persons get older. So if a higher dose were more effective, that would be a relatively easy way to improve effectiveness in seniors because we could use the vaccine that we already have. Now, we would need to do more evaluations to determine whether that would, in fact, be beneficial. But the studies to date showing a greater you know, antibody serologic response to higher doses of vaccine suggest that could be a promising avenue to pursue. If the frail don't get vaccinated, should we be looking at other strategies? Certainly something that comes to mind is the very low rate of vaccination in healthcare providers who are taking care of these frail people. Should there be some response to that? Should there be mandatory vaccination in the workplace, of course, with an opportunity for informed declination? Well, I think that, you know, increasing a healthcare provider vaccine coverage is an area of active pursuit on the part of professional agencies and the CDC. But to obtain a substantial overall impact in seniors by reducing their risk of being exposed to influenza. So apart from the ability to, you know, vaccinate them and protect them if they should come in contact with influenza, another approach is to, you know, sort of put them in a bubble and and prevent them from having the chance to come in contact with somebody with influenza. You really need to know a lot more about how the influenza virus circulates in the population at large, who are the predominant spreaders and how it gets you know, from one place to another. And what we suspect is that really children, and especially school-age children, are one of the primary transmitting agents of influenza. And so that's why you know, there are the new recommendations out this year to vaccinate all children up to 18 years of age in order to dampen the transmission in the overall population. It's a little unclear what level of coverage you need to achieve to get that kind of effect and, and what kind of decrease, if any, you'll see in the you know, other age groups, the senior age groups, as a result of more widespread vaccination of children. Archives of Internal Medicine in 2005 commented on, despite tripling the amount of people who are vaccinated between 1980 and 2001, the number of deaths has not changed. Should the CDC step back and change their recommendations as far as vaccinating the elderly? Well, that was a very nice study done by my colleague and friend, Lonnie Simonson. And what that's showing is a lot of observational studies, meaning studies that simply compare people who get vaccine and those who don't, have reported that the vaccinated group was at greatly lower risk of death from any cause, 50% lower risk of death during the winter from any cause. If that's true, then as we give more and more vaccine to seniors, you would expect to see a decrease in all-cause mortality, which was not seen. The problem is that those results are not plausible. What those results tell us is that there is this problem about differences in people who get the vaccine and those who don't. So it's not getting the vaccine that reduced their risk of death by half. It's the fact that seniors who are at much lower risk of death were more likely to get the vaccine. But the true impact that influenza vaccine could have on all deaths depends on what proportion of all deaths are caused by influenza. And we believe that although influenza is an important cause of wintertime mortality, you know, there's lots of other 
causes of mortality that act throughout the year. So during the winter, influenza probably causes only about 5% of all deaths in seniors. And that can vary a bit, but that's roughly the proportion. So if you had a vaccine that was perfect and prevented all those deaths, you would expect to see a 5% decrease in all deaths as a result of preventing the fraction due to influenza. So really, you could have a great vaccine and you would have no detectable change in deaths over time as you increase vaccination rates because it's sort of a needle in a haystack or signal-to-noise problem. Your true effect is a relatively small proportion of the whole pie that you're looking at will all cause death. So I don't think the CDC needs to change the recommendations on the basis of the fact that we haven't seen notable declines in all-cause mortality. But I do think that we need to recognize that those studies reporting such fantastic effects against all-cause mortality are not due to true vaccine effects, but due to this healthy vaccine bias. So what do I do with the statement that vaccination reduces death by 50% and hospitalization by 30%. I'm not a math wizard, but there seems to be a real tension between those two statistics that we just talked about. Yeah, I think both are substantial overestimates of the true effect of vaccine. And that, you know, the study we did regarding pneumonia, we believe provides a sort of a more realistic basis for estimating what might be the true vaccine effect. You know, our best years have been when the antigenic match has been very good between the pathogen and the vaccine. What can we anticipate this year? Well, you know, with influenza, you never know what right. might happen. That's right. uh, that's what the thrill and the, the anguish of dealing with influenza. Uh, it's a unique year in that all three strains are different from last year's vaccine. And the manufacturers really stepped up to the plate because that's a very difficult task to come up with a vaccine in which every strain has been changed. We hope that it matches the circulating strains. That was the best available guess that went into choosing the composition of this year's vaccines, but only time will tell. You know, today we've been talking about the controversy that exists about vaccination and its benefits, that maybe they've possibly been overestimated, but certainly no one can deny that being vaccinated has helped millions of people. I think we should continue, as Dr. Jackson has suggested, to investigate and to look at all the clinical research in this area as it unfolds for us. I want to thank Dr. Jackson for being our guest today, and we've been discussing this controversy that exists about influenza vaccination. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MDXM157. Thank you for listening.